We've got a lot of ground to cover today, and I know that that's my fault, not yours. Um, but nevertheless, we're going to get going and see how far we get uh, here in our survey of the book of Job. So I will pray. Lord, thank you uh, for this morning, for another opportunity to come to your word. But I pray for um, your Holy Spirit um, to guide us and give us wisdom when we see things that are difficult or perplexing. Um, Open our eyes to see wonderful things in your law. For Jesus' sake, amen. So turn to Job chapter 4. We are going to try to cover the bulk of the dialogue today between Job and his friends. Um, That's a um, perhaps a foolish thing for me to attempt to do in one Sunday. Um, But I think you'll see why we're doing it this way. Um, we'll begin to see some, re- some themes repeat over and over again throughout these chapters. And in fact, some commentators, um, well, e- even we can be pretty hard on Job's friends, um, but Calvin said of Job's friends, they only know one song and they sing it to death. <laughs> so perhaps it's better not to dwell on it too long, but we're going to skip across the surface Uh, reading a number of verses um, along the way. We'll look at each friend in turn, Eliphaz, Bildad, then Zophar. Then we'll look at Job and see how he's been responding to his friends. So, Job chapter 4. This, of course, is after Job has offered this lamentation in chapter 3, which we saw last time, um, pronouncing a curse on the day of his birth and expressing a wish that he wished that he was now dead because of his great suffering. So, Job chapter 4, verse 7 and 8 from Eliphaz. He says this, Remember now, who ever perished being innocent? Or where were the upright destroyed? According to what I have seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. So right here at the very beginning, Eliphaz is going straight for the doctrine of retribution. He is suggesting, I think, um, that uh, there must have been something Job has done to bring about this suffering in his life. And it's interesting that the way he describes this is actually in agrarian or agricultural terms. Those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. And that's a very similar language to what the Apostle Paul uses in Galatians. In the most perhaps familiar um, way that we understand retribution, you reap what you sow. So again, what do we conclude from what Eliphaz is saying? Um, Well, we might not want to rush to judgment immediately, because look at verse 9. He continues and says, by the breath of God, they, that is the wicked, they perish. By the blast of his anger, they come to an end. So perhaps Eliphaz is not necessarily trying to put his finger on Job necessarily. Maybe he's talking about what he sees about the wicked and the evil in general. And the conclusion he makes is that they perish. They die at the blast of God's anger. And of course, Job is not dead. Job is still alive. So perhaps Eliphaz is saying, Job, yes, there might be some slight sin in your life, but I don't think Eliphaz is saying that Job has been plowing iniquity simply for the fact that he has not yet died. 
So this is how Eliphaz begins. So what is Eliphaz's advice to Job in this situation? What should Job do? Well, two things. First of all, he exhorts Job, well, listen to me, hear my wisdom. And then he proceeds in the rest of chapter 4, which we're not going to read, describing this revelation that uh, Eliphaz has received from God. Uh, Direct revelation from God, wisdom he wants to impart to Job. So he says, listen to this. We're not going to delve into that. But look at chapter 5. The next thing that he tells Job to do is to seek the Lord. Chapter 5, verses 6 through 9. For affliction does not come from the dust, neither does trouble sprout from the ground. For man is born for trouble, as sparks fly upward. But as for me, I would seek God, and I would place my cause before God, who does great and unsearchable things, wonders without number. We may be familiar with verse 7. It sounds very proverbial. Man is born for trouble, surely as sparks fly upward. So perhaps Eliphaz is saying, Job, there's no getting around this. You just got to get through this. This is just part of life on planet Earth. Man is born for trouble. Because everyone knows that when the blacksmith is working his metalwork on the anvil, hammering it into shape, the sparks fly upward. Everyone knows that. And likewise, Eliphaz says, everyone knows that man's life is just full of trouble. Now, in some ways, I think that is true. But is it very compassionate? Is Eliphaz being very empathetic to Job's case? But again, he does suggest something good to do. Seek the Lord, he says. Seek God. Place your cause before God in verse 8. I've lost my place. Yeah, so seek the Lord. And then let's see what else Eliphaz says. Look down at verse 17 as he begins to conclude his first speech. He says, Behold, how happy is the man whom God reproves. So do not despise the discipline of the Almighty, for he inflicts pain and gives relief. He wounds and his hands also heal. From six troubles he will deliver you, and in seven evil will not touch you. So this is interesting. Eliphaz seems to suggest that Job should be happy. Your ESV says blessed. Blessed is the man whom God reproves. And yes, I think that's also true. It is a blessing when the Lord reproves us for our sin. And again, underneath this statement Eliphaz is making, he must be saying that, Job, you've done something because now God is reproving you. And he says that in light of this, in light of your terrible suffering, you are blessed. Now, again... Is that showing a lot of sensitivity to his friend? I think he's trying to empathize with him, saying, yes, the Lord wounds. He also heals. That's also true. But on what basis? What does Job need to do? What hope does Job have that this is actually true for him? Because he's lamented for an entire chapter of his terrible fate, crying out for relief from his pain and from rest, and for peace. But it hasn't come. God hasn't brought it. And so I think Eliphaz is effectively saying, Job, just be patient. Seek the Lord, and everything's going to turn out fine. Now, again, 
I don't think that that's something that we tell someone when they're in great pain and suffering, that everything is going to be fine. We don't know if that's the case. Let's flip forward to Eliphaz's next speech in chapter 15 and see how he develops his thinking. Turn forward to chapter 15. We're going to read a longer chunk here. Chapter 15, verses 1 through 16. Then Eliphaz the Temanite responded, Should a wise man answer with windy knowledge and fill himself with the east wind? Should he argue with useless talk or with words which are not profitable? Indeed, you do away with reverence and hinder meditation before God. For your guilt teaches your mouth, and you choose the language of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you, and not I. For your own lips testify against you. Were you the first man to be born, or were you brought forth before the hills? Do you hear the secret counsel of God and limit wisdom to yourself? What do you know that we do not know? What do you understand that we do not? Both the gray-haired and the aged are among us, older than your father. Are the consolations of God too small for you? Even the word spoken gently with you? Why does your heart carry you away? And why do your eyes flash? That you should turn your spirit against God and allow such words to go out of your mouth. What is man that he should be pure? For he who is born of a woman that he should be righteous. Behold, he puts no trust in his holy ones and the heavens are not pure in his sight. How much less one who is detestable and corrupt man who drinks iniquity like water. It seems to me that Eliphaz's tone is sharpening. Quite a bit, in fact. First of all, there's some name-calling. I think he calls Job a windbag. <laughs> Should a wise man answer with windy knowledge and fill himself with the east wind? And then he begins to say that Job is doing away with reverence which is fear of God. And he speaks of Job's guilt, and he says that Job's own words have condemned him. So whereas we could see that Eliphaz's first speech wasn't necessarily pointing directly at Job, I think this one definitely is. I don't see any way around it. Eliphaz is saying that the, that the doctrine of retribution is being played out in Job's life. And not only is Job a sinner who's condemned himself, Eliphaz also says that Job is a fool. Verses 7 through 9, these seem to be also kind of arrogantly dripping with sarcasm. Are you the first man to be born, or were you brought forth before the hills? Do you hear the secret counsel of God and limit wisdom to yourself? Well, it was actually Eliphaz that said that he had a word from God in chapter 4. But now it's not okay for Job to perhaps think that he knows something of theology. He's offended that Job might think that he has a corner on God's counsel. We've got to keep going. Flip to Eliphaz's third speech in chapter 22. <clears throat> chapter 22, verses 4 and 5. Is it because of your reverence that he reproves you? That he entered into judgment against you? Is not your wickedness great? and your iniquities without end. So it seems that Eliphaz has gone from, Job, 
just be patient. Seek the Lord. Everything's going to turn out fine. Now he's saying to Job that your iniquities are without end. I think there's a big difference in those things. Eliphaz is moving in a direction here. And then he begins to catalog a specific list of sins that he says that Job has committed. Look at verses 6 through 11. If you have taken pledges of your brothers without cause and stripped men naked, to the weary you have given no water to drink, and from the hungry you have withheld bread. But the earth belongs to the mighty man, and the honorable man dwells in it. You have sent widows away empty, and the strength of the orphans has been crushed. Therefore, snares surround you, and sudden dread terrifies you, or darkness, so that you cannot see, and an abundance of water covers you. So all of these sins that Eliphaz is accusing Job of, they kind of all seem related to the relationship between the rich and the poor. And if you remember from the prologue, Job was the greatest man in all the East. I described him as in the top 1% of his day. Extremely wealthy man. And now Eliphaz is saying that Job mistreats the poor and the less fortunate. Taking the pledges of his brothers without cause, if Job was involved in um, perhaps giving loans, this could be foreclosing on a loan early or keeping the collateral even if the loan has been paid back. Stripping men naked, giving no water to the weary, withholding bread from the hungry, um, sending widows away empty, crushing the strength of orphans. Eliphaz is describing a ruthless scoundrel here. I mean, really. And again, Eliphaz's conclusion in verses 10 and 11 is that therefore, Job, snares surround you. Sudden dread terrifies you. And an abundance of water, think the water of judgment, covers you. Now, does Eliphaz have any basis or evidence for what he says here? Does he have any evidence at all that Job has actually done these things? Well, you and I know from the prologue that Job was a godly man. He was blameless. He was upright. He feared God, and he turned away from evil. One might think that this would have been the first thing that Eliphaz told Job when he arrived in Uz. Something like this. You know, Job, I wish you could be meeting under better circumstances. But now that I'm here, there are some things I want to talk to you about. There are some things that I've noticed about your business practices, Job. Let's talk about these things. Have you been mistreating the poor? But Eliphaz didn't say anything like that in his first or second speech. Nothing at all like that. So why the change? It's true that Eliphaz has been preaching retribution the whole time in all of his speeches. But it seems that he's really turned 180 degrees from what he initially said to what he says now. Well, it may be difficult to put our finger on why exactly Eliphaz has turned on Job, but I, I might explain it like this, that this is the only way for Eliphaz to hold on to his theology and his worldview. I think this is really the critical error that all of Job's friends makes. Eliphaz is so attached and so dedicated to his simplistic doctrine of retribution is that he is now making totally unfounded accusations against his friend. I don't believe there's any evidence that Job has done these things. 
But for Eliphaz, the world turns on retribution. So he sees his friends suffering terribly. So the only explanation Eliphaz has is Job must have sinned terribly. Even able to make things up, I think, about his friend. He has no other explanation for what's happening to Job. Turn back to chapter 8. Let's look at Bilbad's contribution. Chapter 8, verses 1 through 7. Then Bildad the Shuite answered, How long will you say these things, and the words of your mouth be a mighty wind? Does God pervert justice, or does the Almighty pervert what is right? If your sons sinned against him, then he delivered them into the power of their transgression. If you would seek God and implore the compassion of the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, surely now he would rouse himself for you and restore your righteous estate. Though your beginning was insignificant, yet your end will increase greatly. Well, it seems that Job's friends can't help but call him a windbag. Bildad begins with name-calling as well. The words of your mouth be a mighty wind. But with that out of the way, he then makes a rhetorical question, for he's saying that God does not pervert justice, and that God always does what is right. And of course, that's gloriously true. God does not pervert justice. And God always does what is right. We can say amen to Bildad here. But then he trips in the next verse. He says, if your sons sinned against him, then he delivered them into the power of their transgression. So now Bildad comes to his interpretation. And it's once again retribution. Understanding that Job's children were all killed, Bildad says, well, they sinned, and so God, who is just, God has meted out the just punishment that they deserved. In other words, Job, your children had it coming to them. Now, is this what you say to someone who has lost their children? No. Now, who knows what Job is thinking when Bildad says this, Um, But then Bildad actually begins to give some good advice, just like Eliphaz, he exhorts Job to seek the Lord, seek God, and implore the compassion of the Almighty. That's a good thing to do. But notice why Bildad tells Job to do that. Look at what he says, verse 6. If you you are pure and upright, surely now he would rouse himself for you and restore your righteous estate. And when you see estate here, don't think about a plot of land and a house. Don't think Pemberley or Netherfield. Think Job's estate, the totality of who Job was. He's saying that if you would seek the Lord, and I think implied in that is repent, seek the Lord, repent, then God will restore you, Job, to once again being the greatest man in all the East. In some ways, if we wanted to be crass about it, I think Bildad suggesting to Job, if you'd seek the Lord, you'd get your stuff back. But is that Job's problem? Now, I'm sure that Job would dearly love to have his children back. But even if he did follow Bildad's advice and seek the Lord, 
with the idea that, yes, I'll be restored. Well, his children aren't coming back. Perhaps he would get his home and his wealth and his flocks and his herds. But again, that's not Job's problem. In chapter 3, when Job was, was lamenting his fate, he was not lamenting about the things he had lost physically. He was lamenting that he feels like he's been treated unjustly by God. He has this turmoil in his soul, no rest, no peace. This is why Job was so tormented in chapter 3. And so I think Bildad's counsel fails here because it's focused on externals. He also has simplistic ideas about retributive justice. I think Bildad's advice basically reduces God to a cosmic vending machine or jukebox, a God of inputs and outputs. Job, if you would do this, God would do this. That's what Bildad is saying. Turn to his next speech in chapter 18. Eighteen verses one through four. Then Bildad the Shuite responded, How long will you hunt for words? Show understanding, and then we can talk. Why are we regarded as beasts, as stupid in your eyes? O you who tear yourself in your anger, for your sake is the earth to be abandoned or the rock to be moved from its place? So Bildad is clearly angry with his friend. Bildad feels like that the way Job has been responding to him, and we'll see that in a few moments, Bildad feels like he's been reduced to something less than human. That Job thinks of Bildad as a beast. And he reproves Job for his own anger in verse 4. And then he says, interesting here, for your sake is the earth to be abandoned or the rock to be moved from its place. What is Bildad saying here? Well, I think that Bildad's theology, the natural order of the world, that is creation, physical stuff, is inextricably linked with the moral order of the world. And we talked about the moral order of the world in our first week, and this is the way that God providentially rules over creation. Bildad sees this connection between the natural order and the moral order such that in Bildad's mind, that if God were to come now and vindicate Job to declare that, yes, Job is actually innocent, if God were to do that morally, well, then Bildad believes that the earth itself would break apart, rocks being torn from their place, the physical laws of nature being abandoned. In some ways, I think, to accommodate Job's viewpoint, Bildad thinks he'd have to be living in some sort of alternate universe where up is down, and down is up. And then Bildad goes on and he sharpens the focus more closely on Job. He talks about the fate of the wicked and the balance of this chapter. Let's read verses 12 through 21 of chapter 18. Bildad says, His strength, that is, the wicked person, his strength is famished and calamity is ready at his side. His skin is devoured by disease. The firstborn of death devours his limbs. He is torn from the security of his tent, and they march him before the king of terrors. There dwells in his tent nothing of his. Brimstone is scattered on his habitation. His roots are dried below, and his branch is cut off above. 
memory of him perishes from the earth, and he has no name abroad. He is driven from light into darkness and chased from the inhabited world. He has no offspring or posterity among his people, nor any survivor where he sojourned. Those in the west are appalled at his fate. Those in the east are seized with horror. Surely such are the dwellings of the wicked, and this is the place of him who does not know God. So again, I think Bildad is kind of talking about what he thinks about the fate of the wicked in general, but notice how many things that Bildad says that apply directly to Job's situation. Verse 13, his skin is devoured by disease. Well, that's happening to Job. We learn that in chapter 2. He was covered with boils or sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Verse 14, he's torn from the security of his tent. Job has lost his home. Verse 15, brimstone is scattered on his habitation. Remember, fire from God fell from heaven and, and burned up Job's flocks. Verse 18, he is driven from light into darkness. In some ways, Job is in a very dark place, personally. Verse 19, he has no offspring or posterity among the people, nor any survivor. Job's children are dead. Verse 20 could be talking about the reputation that Job has has been ruined. Those in the east and the west are appalled at this. And in his conclusion, this is the place of him who does not know God. Oh, I forgot to read verse 14. The second part of verse 14. They march him before the king of terrors. This is death. So Bildad is suggesting not only, I think, that this is what he sees, the way of the wicked, but this is what he thinks is coming for Job. Job, if you maintain your integrity, if you continue to say that you're innocent, this is what's going to happen to you. Bildad believes that this is playing out in Job's life because of some sin that Job has done. So the doctrine of retribution, very clearly shown, I think, in Bildad. Let's look at, oh, and then I should also say, the, the conclusion he makes is that perhaps Job actually doesn't even know God from verse 21. And again, what we know about Job was a godly man, and his friend Bildad suggests, yeah, you might not even know God. Let's look at the third friend, Zophar. Um, chapter 11, turn back to, and we're not going to dwell on Zophar's contribution. Um, he only has two speeches, whereas Eliphaz and Bildad each have three speeches. Um, he's not as cold and calculating, necessarily. Um, he lacks the fire and brimstone of Bildad. Um, but in some ways, I think Zophar might be the one most, most of all convinced of Job's wickedness. So chapter 11, verse 5 and 6. This is Zophar. But would that God might speak and open his lips against you and show you the secrets of wisdom, for sound wisdom has two sides. Know then that God forgets a part of your iniquity. I'll read that last phrase again. Know then that God forgets a part of your iniquity. So underlying this statement again is that Job has sinned in some way, 
to bring about his suffering. And by saying this, I think Zophar is actually saying that God is being merciful to Job because God has forgotten part of Job's sin. I think Zophar is also saying, Job, you're not suffering more than you deserve. You're suffering less than you deserve. Let's keep reading from chapter, uh, verse 7. Can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? They are high as the heavens. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. What can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. If he passes by or shuts up or calls an assembly, who can restrain him? For he knows false men, and he sees iniquity without investigating. And an idiot will become intelligent when the foal of a wild donkey is born a man. So Zophar says some things that are perhaps worthwhile, speaking of God's incomprehensibility in these verses, the fact that we cannot understand entirely the ways of God. But he adds these barbs in verses 11 and 12, saying that God knows false men and he sees iniquity without investigating. I think Zophar is convinced that there must be some secret sin in Job's life. And Zophar says, God knows about it. He doesn't even have to investigate. He knows what you've done, Job. And then in verse 12, this proverb, kind of interesting. An idiot will become intelligent when the foal of a wild donkey is born a man. Well, so far could be saying two things. He could be saying that it is as unlikely for Job to become intelligent as it is for a man to be born from a donkey. There's an alternate reading that Zophar simply might be engaging us in name-calling himself, essentially calling Job the most stubborn of the barnyard beasts. In any event, in Zophar's second speech in chapter 20, he basically ignores Job, and he goes through this monologue on the fate of the wicked. We're not going to look at chapter 20. But again, as I say, especially with Zophar telling Job, um, that God is being merciful to him in his suffering. Um, I think Zophar is very convinced that Job has sinned. So, friends like this, who needs enemies? But how does Job respond to this? How would you respond? Turn back to chapter 6, I believe it is. Now, as we go through Job's responses, we'll see two things kind of recurring. First of all, he will fiercely maintain his innocence. He will continue to maintain. And again, he's talking about his life before his suffering began. I think it perhaps goes without saying that in the dialogue, Job does sin. I think he says things he should have never have said. But when Job is maintaining his innocence, it's always looking back to his life before he began to suffer. And again, he's not claiming perfection. The scriptures don't say that. It says that he was a godly man who had done nothing to deserve his suffering. So he maintains his innocence. And secondly, um, he has a strong desire for a face-to-face encounter with God and actually in a courtroom setting. Job wants to bring litigation against God. He wants to take God to court 
in order to determine has God been just or not. Job wants to be vindicated. Chapter 6, verses 8 through 10. Oh, that my request might come to pass and that God would grant my longing. Would that God were willing to crush me, that he would loose his hand and cut me off. But it is still my consolation, and I rejoice in unsparing pain that I have not denied the words of the Holy One. So Job also is on a roller coaster throughout the rest of the dialogue. There's low points. There's a low point here, I think. Um, Would that God were willing to crush me. But there's also high points we'll see. And it's interesting that even in the very next verse, on the one hand, would that God were willing to crush me. In the next verse, I rejoice in unsparing pain, which is a courageous thing to do. And it shows faith on Job's part. But notice why he's rejoicing. The second part of verse 10, that I have not denied the words or the ordinances of the Holy One. He's simply maintaining his innocence. He's rejoicing that he has not sinned. Look over at chapter 7, verses 17 through 21. Now now Job is not really speaking to his friends. He's praying. 7, verse 17, speaking to God. What is man that thou dost magnify him, and that thou art concerned about him, that thou dost examine him every morning, and try him every moment? Wilt thou never turn thy gaze away from me? nor let me alone until I swallow my spittle? Have I sinned? What have I done to thee, O watcher of men? Why hast thou set me as thy target, so that I am a burden to myself? Why then dost thou not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I would lie down in the dust, and that will seek me, but I will not be. So Job now prays, and he is being introspective. I think he is asking the Lord, is there any sin in my life? In verse 20, he says something disturbing. He says, why hast thou set me as thy target? Job believes that God has Job in the crosshairs, which I think Job is saying that he believes that God is his enemy. And this kind of thinking underlies what Job will continue to do, demanding to take God to court. And this is interesting. Job is not above petulant outbursts. At the very end of verse 21, Thy will seek me, but I will not be. One commentator suggests that this is Job's way of saying that if Job is not vindicated and Job does die in the midst of his suffering, God will look for him and not find him. Job is saying, you'll be sorry when I'm gone. This is like a 10-year-old boy who believes he is not appreciated at home, threatens to his parents to run away. You'll be sorry when I'm gone. Turn over to chapter 9. Verses 1 through 3. Then Job answered, In truth, I know that this is so, but how can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to dispute with him, he could not answer him once in a thousand times. So now Job is clearly mulling over the idea in his mind having this dispute with God. But he's not really confident in how it might go. Understandably so. He says, if one wished to dispute with him, 
he could not answer him once in a thousand times. He's not quite sure if Job would be able to have the words in this dispute with God. Go down to verse 14. How then can I answer him and choose my words before him? For though I were right, I could not answer. I would have to implore the mercy of my judge. If I called and he answered me, I could not believe that he was listening to my voice. For he bruises me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not allow me to get my breath, but saturates me with bitterness. If it is a matter of power, behold, he is the strong one. And if it is a matter of justice, who can summon him? Though I am righteous, my mouth will condemn me. Though I am guiltless, he will declare me guilty. I am guiltless. I do not take notice of myself. I despise my life. It is all one. Therefore I say, he destroys the guiltless and the wicked. So I think there's courtroom language throughout this. Job is seeking to have this dispute. But again, he's concerned. He knows that God is big and Job is small. So how is this going to go? Well, he continues to assert his innocence, saying, I am guiltless. But then again, he clearly calls God's justice into question, saying in verse 22, he destroys the guiltless and the wicked. And of course, that's the whole reason that Job wants to take God to court. He believes God has been unjust. Go down to verse 32. For he is not a man as I am, that I may answer him, that we may go to court together. There is no umpire between us who may lay his hand upon us both. So this is a theme that will reemerge a couple of times after this. He uses the word umpire or arbiter, I think it might be in the ESV. Um, Job is looking for a third party to help him in his case against God. But notice here he says that there is no such party. There is no umpire between us. Now, Job's thinking is going to develop, but right now he's saying that I wish there was a third party that could help me, but there's not. Chapter 10, Job is in another low point. He has this lamentation. We're not going to look at chapter 10. Um, look over at chapter 12. <clears throat> then Job responded, this is in verse, I'm sorry, verse 3. Chapter 12, verse 3. But I have intelligence as well as you. I am not inferior to you. And who does not know such things as these? I am a joke to my friends. The one who called on God and he answered him. The just and blameless man is a joke. Now I think we can understand Job's sentiment. He's speaking directly back to his friends. This comes after Zophar's speech. For Zophar said that God was being merciful to Job. Job now says, I'm a joke to my friends. Which is his way of saying, they're not even taking me seriously. Are they even taking my situation seriously? Um, so much of Job's friends' counsel is, it seems detached from Job's actual situation. There's plenty of theologizing and musing on their own worldviews, but not a lot of compassion or empathy. In the rest of chapter 12, um, Job begins to talk um, from his own perspective about the doctrine of retribution. And what he says 
is that he, he thinks that the way he sees it play, played out in real life is not necessarily the way that his friends are describing it. Because he describes in the rest of um, chapter 12 um, the misfortune that he's seen of the most godly people. He's seen godly people suffer. And so it, he's beginning to poke holes in his, his friends' adherence to the doctrine of retribution. Chapter 13. Chapter 13, verse 3. But I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to argue with God. Again, very clearly, he's looking for this face-to-face courtroom scene to argue with him. Verse 4, speaking of his friends, but you smear with lies. You are all worthless physicians. Oh, that you would be completely silent, that it would become your wisdom. We understand this too. Job is saying that his friend's counsel is worthless. You're worthless physicians. Just be quiet. Now go to verse 13 of chapter 13. Be silent before me so that I may speak, and let come on me what may. Why should I take my flesh and my teeth and put my life in my hands? Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Nevertheless, I will argue my ways before him. This also will be my salvation, for a godless man may not come before his presence. Listen carefully to my speech and let my declaration fill your ears. Behold now, I have prepared my case. I know that I'll be vindicated. Who will contend with me? For then I would be silent and die. Interestingly, Job's confidence is growing. If you think back to chapter 9, he wasn't at all sure that he'd have words to even answer God. Now he says that I know that I will be vindicated. Job's confidence has grown to the point that he believes he's going to win his case. Not sure how he believes that, but this is what Job is saying. I'm going to win my case against God. And then there's this memorable testimony of faith in verse 15. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Now Job has never departed from what he initially said in chapter 1 and chapter 2, that God ultimately is responsible for what's happened to Job. He's acknowledged God's sovereignty over suffering. And despite the fact that Job sees God as his enemy, and despite the fact that Job wants to enter into this lawsuit with God, this is amazing that he still says, though he slay me, I will hope in him. So however Job is in his ups and downs, he's still expressing hope and faith in the God who he even thinks is his enemy. Now the next chapter, chapter 14, is not as hopeful. He speaks of the finality of death. Chapter 14, verse 7 through 12. Job says, There is hope for a tree when it is cut down that it will sprout again and its shoots will not fail. Though its roots grow old in the ground and its stump dies in the dry soil, at the scent of water it will flourish and put forth sprigs like a plant. But man dies and lies prostrate. Man expires, and where is he? As water evaporates from the sea and a river becomes parched and dried up, So man lies down and does not rise until the heavens be no more. 
he will not awake nor be aroused out of his sleep. So we should realize that the New Testament doctrine of resurrection was not fully developed in Job's day. For people in Job's day, death was mostly an end. Now there was a consciousness. He, Sheol is described as this kind of dark, watery place, the place of the dead. But ultimately, he doesn't expect to rise in verse 12. He will not awake nor be aroused out of his sleep. Now we need to keep that in mind before we get to chapter 19. Um, but I'll also say, well, or kind of to illustrate the point, um, he thinks there's hope for a tree. You cut down a tree to the stump, well, a sprig or a shoot might come up from that stump, but he expects when man dies, he will not rise. Just keep that in mind. Chapter 16, chapter 16, verse 18. O earth, do not cover my blood, and let there be no resting place for my cry. Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and my advocate is on high. My friends are my scoffers. My eye weeps to God. Oh, that a man might plead with God as a man with his neighbor. For when a few years are past, I shall go the way of no return. So here he is again thinking about this third party, this advocate or witness. Now, interestingly, back in chapter 9, recall that he said that there was no umpire, that that third party didn't exist. And now says that he knows that his witness is in heaven, and his advocate is on high. So his thinking is developing in this regard. Um, it's growing, and we'll see it grow even more in chapter 19. Um, but again, remember, whatever third party he's looking for, it has to do with coming to his defense in the scene of the courtroom, or being a witness to testify to his innocence. So let's go to chapter 19. Chapter 19, I'll read verses just 23 and 24. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. And with an iron stylus and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. Of course, Job had no way to know. But his words are written down. I think inscribed in the rock of God's infallible word. Verse 25 through 27. And as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and my eyes shall see, and not another. My heart faints within me. Well, there it is. Perhaps the most well-known or best-loved verse in the entire book. 19.25, as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take a stand on the earth. Now, as well-loved as this verse is, we might want to pause and ask ourselves the question, what is Job really saying? Because he might not be saying exactly what we like to think that he's saying. Remember, he's seeking to bring litigation against God. He's seeking to bring this lawsuit and he's becoming increasingly confident that he's going to win the lawsuit. Um, looking for this arbiter, this mediator, this heavenly witness. And now he refers to his redeemer. So who is Job's redeemer? Well, 
This word in English, redeemer, from the Hebrew, it's goel. It's the kinsman redeemer. And as soon as I say that, that might make us think about the book of Ruth. That's where the kinsman redeemer perhaps looms largest in our minds. We know that Boaz was Ruth's kinsman redeemer. And this word exists in other places in the Old Testament. You may recall also um, when Keith has been preaching through Joshua, when he got to the text about um, someone that accidentally took someone's life, the manslayer. So whoever's life he took, that person's relative was the avenger of blood. And he was justified in going to kill this manslayer unless the manslayer fled to a city of refuge. So the avenger of blood in the book of Joshua, it's the same Hebrew word, the goel, the kinsman redeemer. So we should understand um, that this has to do with justice being done. The goel is the next of kin who has an obligation to see that justice is done on his relative's behalf, which is what Boaz did for Ruth. This is a term relating to justice. And it makes sense because this is what Job is seeking. He's seeking justice to be done. He's seeking to prove that God has not treated him fairly, causing him to suffer. And so Job is looking for this next of kin to help him in his case. So who is Job's next of kin? Think about that while I turn the page. Who is Job's redeemer? Well, I hope that we're all desiring to say that it's Jesus. It's a very attractive choice. But we have to keep in mind what it is that Job is after. If Job's redeemer is Jesus, we should know that he's not seeking Jesus in order to be forgiven of his sin. That's not Job's problem. He's not looking for a redeemer to buy him back from bondage, from sin, or from sin's power. He's not looking for atonement. He's looking for justice to be done. And so I think that it's perfectly fine to, to think that this person is Jesus, but remember that Job is looking for justice to be done, not looking for his sin to be forgiven. In verses 26 and 27, he kind of looks forward to the end. And is this end that Job is imagining that he is describing here before he dies or after he dies? Many, many see in these verses um, Job proclaiming, uh, boldly proclaiming his belief in a bodily resurrection. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. And I think that could well be the case. But I think it's also possible that given Job what is, has said thus far about death, and the finality of death, from Job's perspective, he might be thinking that if it comes after I die, it's too late. His desire is to have a face-to-face -face encounter with God in this life, in his life. Perhaps talking about his skin being destroyed refers to his disease. That even if his illness entirely destroys his skin, he still has hope that he's going to have this encounter with God. He will see God in his flesh so that justice might be done. I think this is perhaps why his heart faints within him, imagining the idea that in this life, even if his skin is totally destroyed, he still has hope that God might vindicate him before he dies. 
Now, either way, whether he's looking forward to this happening before he dies or after he's resurrected, either way, he's expressing profound words of hope and faith here. Perhaps the high point of his faith. Faith in God, faith in Jesus, that he will put things right. Job doesn't understand. He's on this roller coaster. He's getting bad advice. He doesn't understand what's happening to him, but he does believe that at some point, God will make things right. And that's important for us to know. Chapter 21. I think we can do this. Verses 7 through 14. Job says, Why do the wicked still live? Continue on and become very powerful. Their descendants are established with them in their sight and their offspring before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear. Neither is the rod of God on them. His ox mates without fail. His cow calves and does not abort. They send forth their little ones like a flock and their children skip about. They sing to the timbrel and the harp and rejoice at the sound of the flute. They spend their days in prosperity and suddenly they go down to Sheol and they say to God, depart from us. We do not even desire the knowledge of thy ways. So just briefly, here Job again is giving voice to what he's seen around him. He's seen the wicked being prosperous. His friends have been telling him the wicked are always punished. Job is saying, well, I've actually seen the wicked being pretty prosperous. And I think you and I have too, right? He is poking holes in their simplistic doctrine of retribution. Saying that I've seen the wicked seen their children skip about and play. As opposed to what's happened to Job. Now, don't misunderstand, there is truth in the doctrine of retribution. Scripture teaches it in multiple places. But the message of the book of Job in in this regard is that retribution is not the only explanation for what happens in our lives. There are other things happening that we may or may not be aware of. Retribution is not the only thing, the only explanation for what happens in our lives. It's not that simplistic. Finally, one more text. We're almost done. Chapter 27, verses 1 through 6. Then Job continued his discourse and said, As God lives, who has taken away my right, and the Almighty, who has embittered my soul, for as long as life is in me and the breath of God is in my nostrils, my lips certainly will not speak unjustly, nor will my tongue mutter deceit. Far be it from me that I should declare you right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. I hold fast my righteousness and will not let it go. My heart does not reproach any of my days. Here Job takes a different approach. The time for arguing with his friends is over. The time for theologizing is over. Job now takes an oath. Takes an oath regarding his innocence. And we should mark this because... The way that these Old Testament oaths work, there's a promise. In this case, Job is promising that he's telling the truth about his innocence. And there's a curse that if his oath proves to be false, then a curse is going to be enacted. 
And we also should realize what it is Job is swearing on, what he's taking the oath on. Verse 2, as God lives, he's making the oath on God's life. So should Job's oath prove to be false or incorrect, a curse will be enacted. And usually the way these oaths work, a curse was enacted on the thing you took the oath on. I think this gives kind of an explanation of why Jesus told the Pharisees in the Sermon on the Mount, don't swear by your head or by the temple, because if you end up not keeping that, well, then you're calling a curse on your head or on the temple. And so Job is swearing on God's life. So in the end, if Job's oath to his innocence proves to be wrong or proves to be incorrect, he is enacting a curse on God's life which is exactly the thing that the Satan suggested to God that Job would do if Job's prosperity was taken away. Now, one of our commentators, David Kleins, has a penchant for understatement. And regarding this, he says that Job is engaging in risky business. It's more than that. I think it's rash and dangerous and foolish. But such is the extremity of Job's determination to be proven right. So what will Job do now? Well... Job needs some good counsel. Job needs wisdom. And that's what we'll find next when Job himself asks the question next time we come in chapter 28, where can wisdom be found? Let's pray. Lord, we know that wisdom comes from you and from fearing God and keeping your commandments. Um, Well, there's much here to think about. I pray that you would... um, Impress upon our hearts your goodness, the fact that you do not pervert justice. You always do what's right. And that we can always trust in you, even when we don't understand. We can trust in you, who you are our Redeemer, the one who will make things right in the end, and also who has forgiven us our sin. And so we praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are dismissed.